it's been incredible as a black woman to see all of the like all of the support all the allies coming out and coming forward like it's amazing call me in the afternoon even by Hi, my name is Denise Malanakis, and you're listening to the Marielle's podcast, the Montreal-based podcast where we talk about Quebec and Canadian history that makes us uncomfortable. Um, I'm joined with two beautiful, lovely guests, uh, Olivia, <laughs> Olivia Gale Squires and Jylan Knight. How are you, ladies? Good. Thanks for having us on your show. I'm good. Thank you. So we're over Zoom and we're trying our best. And normally I record with one person and then sometimes I insert audio of a third person. I've never done a three a three-way Zoom call recorded. So we'll we'll see how it goes. It's it's like trial and error. You know, and right before we started rec- recording, Jai asked me like what are we how will this go? Like what is what, what are we going to do? And I, you know, I thought good question. And so essentially it's a very turbulent time right now and you know black lives matter is at like the height of the height of its uh, popularity it's all anyone can talk about you know there are protests it's all over social media and i wanted this episode to be sort of timely and to tie into it but i i really didn't know where to start so uh jai has been really popular in this topic you're a local celebrity <laughs> <laughs> a local celebrity. Well, yeah, so this, um, I mean, I mean, this time right now, I personally didn't expect it all to happen. We're in the middle of, you know, like a health pandemic, and all of a sudden, you know, we're being hit with another pandemic, which is, you know, racism and it, everything being brought to, to light. Um, and for me personally, I felt like it was really the right time for me to, you know, speak up and start telling my story. So especially because we're in Canada, it, it goes, I, I don't want to say it goes unheard because it, it is heard, but not as much or not as frequently as it is in the United States. Um, so I figured now would be kind of the good time for me to speak up and tell my story because people are listening. In high school, I had an incident in which um, some students had written some hurtful or racist things in my grade 12 yearbook. And, you know, I didn't say anything uh, for a few years, quite a few years, um, until now. I spoke up, I let people know uh, that this happened to me and that this is something that probably happens to a lot of people, especially in Canada. And I just figured it was the right time for me to come forward and start talking about it. And, you know, as a result, I've had a lot of people come up to me and, you know, want to make donations or just want to know a little bit more about how they can help. And so I've been pretty vocal using a lot of social media platforms just to kind of, you know, spread the word and education about this, about this movement, because I feel like a lot of people don't know where to start because like I said before it just kind of seems like all of a sudden we've been hit with two pandemics um, and people just are really overwhelmed so I've been really trying to focus and shed light on the education behind the movement or even just you know behind some really simple terms that might be thrown around because it's a lot for people to process so for me really um, I've just been trying to use this time to you know educate myself and educate others because I finally think that this is you know a time for a really big change. I think everyone is really motivated and whether that's in the States or even in Canada or anywhere in the world, I feel like everyone is really listening. So I've just been, you know, using my time towards this and it's been, it's been really great. Um, I feel overwhelmed at times, but you know, we're getting through it and being on this podcast as well is an amazing experience, an amazing platform. Um, and I'm just really excited to keep talking about it. So thank you so much for being on this podcast. And I guess I'm guilty of this too, because I'm sort of using you as like a representative, like, like, oh, Jailin is going out and speaking on behalf of like all racism. And she, her voice is, uh, her, her voice accounts for all the discrimination that this country faces. And that's not fair to you because you only have your own experience, but of course, you know, your experiences are not alone. So, um, I knew I wanted to like have an episode that addresses like some sort of race topic. And I, I, you know, like our group chat suggested, I didn't know how to go about it or where to even start. And I also didn't know like what my role was. And I'm, I'm so torn here. Cause like, I don't want to, I don't want to make it about me, but I'm like, what is my role in this movement? And there's a lot of uh, memes. 
and I don't know if it's just like white guilt that I'm projecting onto <laughs> this podcast. But there's like a lot of memes of like the Karens and like, um, you know, I even saw a video that like heavily critiqued like Game of Thrones and like all that uh, ideology of like Khaleesi freeing the the slaves and like like no, it's the white girl savior that you know we love to perpetrate. So I. I wanted to talk about it and I didn't know how. So traditionally my episodes usually follow one historic event and then we work backwards and we unpack it from every possible aspect. So how do we sort of unpack systemic racism is what I'm asking. Like who's to blame for racism? And that's, that's sort of how it started. So my notes here consist of the history of slavery in Canada. And so I think that's a good beginning but then we need to make a jump from 1830 to when like slavery was abolished to 2020 and you know police brutality and all these like microaggressions or in, like inherited racism. So that's that's sort of what we're struggling with on this episode. And I, I didn't know how to answer your question. How will this go? Or like what's the format? Because I, I have no idea. I have no idea. And I mean, like I said, like I feel like none of us really know like what we're what we're doing and I think you know touching back on what you said about what your role is I think it is important to look at this as a movement that is bigger than yourself but it is also really important to know what role you're playing whether that's you know are you someone who wants to play the role of the educator do you want to be the person who's out there protesting in the streets do you want to be a silent you know donator there's so many different roles that you can take when it comes to this type of change and you know I also feel like you don't have to stick to one specific thing so it can be anything that you want to do to help at any given time I also think that um, when we're talking about this um, that we should take into consideration the type of languages that we're using, the type of language that we use when it comes to this sort of, this sort of topic. Um, and for, the, for this, I, because we're going to be talking about slavery in Canada, I just wanted to let people know, or even just, you know, for us to know, um, when we're referring to people um, who, you know, historically we've been taught are slaves, um, we have to kind of retrain our brains and make sure that we're not referring to them as slaves, but rather people who are enslaved or just enslaved. And, in, you know, there are, there's also the term of the master, slave master, but, you know, if we use the term enslaver or people who held people as property or owned people is kind of, those are some of the small ways that we can start properly retraining our brains when it comes to this sort of thing because those are the things we don't really realize that you know kind of perpetuate this mentality of um kind of I don't really have a term for it but this kind of like I I feel like it's a secret racism that they're kind of they're teaching us in schools and we don't even know that it's being taught to us throughout this you'll hear me talking about enslaved people that's that's where it'll come from and um there's also a term runaway slave so instead of that I'll using the term fugitive from slavery um, and I just find that it's important to to keep these things in mind as we open up the discourse and if people want to also use this when talking to their friends or co-workers or family members this is a great way to help people you know retrain their brains and move forward I think that's such an excellent way, place to start I was just gonna agree with Jai just the fact that euphemizing things because it sounds better to us and it doesn't it makes things just kind of go down maybe easier from our perspective doesn't mean it's correct and it's it and it's it's you know it, it was kind of shocking to even learn about you know or to even consider that you know the person is not what we said they are it's what happened to them realize that even though it's, it's it seems inherently obvious that's not what we were told also going forward i I'm sort of planning to make mistakes and use the wrong, uh, you know, verbiage and, and uh, because I've been trained in this, uh, in this um, ideology, right? I grew up yep. in this ideology and I've been manifesting this ide ideology. And just like an example of that is, um, I think at this point, it's just an embarrassing story. Um, I posted, I was watching the 90 Day Fiance. Um, tell -all. Yeah, the tell all. Exactly. It was the 90 Day, Fian 90 Day Fiance reunion. And um, everybody was on Zoom in their respective countries. And um, Soldier Boy, who is the lovely bachelor in Nigeria um, go, goes on screen and he looks really, really sweaty. So as a joke, I tell my mom to like take a paper towel and pretend to blot his face. And I've made a, a, an Instagram story about that. And I posted that and I was called out 
respectfully, but I, I'm still sensitive. So I was like, oh shit, as you know, it, it was super inappropriate that a, a white woman was commenting on uh, the hygiene of, of who she thought was an immigrant. And that like in the, in the, um, the film industry, there isn't always makeup artists and camera crew there to properly light uh, black people. I was, I was essentially being racist in my post and we went, had a discussion and we went back and forth. And like, I saw Moonlight, I was around when, you know, like Lupita Nyong'o and everyone else was coming out, like exposing like the film industry for like inherent racist tendencies. Like I was aware on that and yet, and you know, I still posted something like that and it didn't even occur to me. And even after it was pointed out, she really needed to explain to me why that may not have been okay. So more of that to follow, naturally. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that's one of those things. And I I find that when it comes to the sort of thing, it's always been a taboo subject um, and we haven't been taught how to talk about it. And we haven't been taught how to, you know, just do anything in regards to race or even consider it. So for you, something that would be completely innocent or that, you know, you had no malicious intent whatsoever could be interpreted in a completely different way from somebody else. And, but I personally find that, you know, as long as you're willing to listen to what other people are saying and hear their point of views on things and potentially adapt your behaviors or change your behaviors, that's, that's what's really important with these conversations. So, you know, us going forward with our conversation and me saying that I'm going to be using the term enslaved rather than slave, that sort of thing. You know, that's, that's my personal choice. That's my way of educating myself. And I've informed you guys that that's how I'm going to be going forward. But I'm also aware that it takes a lot of effort to retrain. So it's not going to be as simple for, for you guys who just, you know, might have heard of it two minutes ago to also retrain your brain for this entire podcast. So it's about, you know, being open to the education, but also giving people enough time to take it in. And I feel like as long as you're willing to, to go through that process of learning, then that's what really counts at the end of the day. So kudos to you for having that conversation with that person and for sharing that story as well. Cause I think that shows a lot of, you know, of your ability to be open and to want to grow and be a part of the change. So that's great. And to not take it as an attack on you as like a white person, it's just, I didn't know, or I didn't, I didn't realize, or I didn't interpret it that way. It's the caucasity of it all. It's honestly, it's, you know, it's, that's what I have to say. I, I agree. <laughs> I concur. I second that. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, yeah. So out of approximately 4,200 enslaved people in New France at the peak of slavery, about 2,700 were indigenous people who were enslaved until 1783, and at least... 1,443 were Black people who were enslaved between the late 1600s and 1831. So we'll start in the early 1600s. So the first Black person to step foot in Canada was a gentleman named Matthew DaCosta, and he was an interpreter for Samuel de Champlain. So he's in the records as being like the first Black person in Canada. And then in 1689, King Louis XIV formally authorizes slavery in New France. It's, it passes in legislation. I really want to talk about 1734, because as soon as I learned about the story of Marie-Joseph Angelique, my whole brain exploded. It's a really interesting story. Yeah. When did you learn about this story? It was really recent. I learned about it this week. I, I had no idea about this, which is crazy considering the story and how close it is. It's happened in Montreal. So yeah, to not learn about it until, you know, I'm 24 years old. That's crazy. It's embarrassing. Um, it's embarrassing. It really, yeah, it really is. Like, le- learned about Samuel de Champlain for five years in high school, you know, again and again every single year. I, this is the first time I'm even hearing about this right now. Please go on. <laughs> I'm Olivia, oh. I heard about this in a meme. So people, not a meme, in, on Instagram, when people were sharing a story and there was her story. And then I was like, oh, I'm filming this episode with my girls uh, about, like, enslaved people. I don't know about this. And then I click on it and then I go down a whole rabbit hole. I loved this story so much. Okay, Olivia, prepare to have your mind blow. So Marie-Joseph Angelique um, was born in Portugal and she was brought to Canada to be enslaved. Um, At the time, there were more than 4,000 people enslaved in New France, and the population of Montreal at the time was 2,000 people. It was essentially like just St. Paul in the Old Port. Like, that was what Montreal was in uh, 1734. Wow. So whereas in the U.S., enslaved people were set to work in fields, and the stereotype is that they were, like, uh, doing manual labor in cotton fields, in Canada, the enslaved people were more like um, 
in metropolitan areas. So they were like in-house domestic. Domestics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There were primarily black slaves who were shipped over um, and indigenous people who were enslaved. Angelique um, worked for François Poulain de Francheville, who lived on St. Paul, and they were across from the uh, Hotel Dieu. So then in 1733, there was a smallpox epidemic and François, who she worked for, dies. And then her ownership is questioned. Because you were their property, right? And now they oh, aren't there anymore. Okay. So in many cases, it became um, like you're passing down your property to person to person, but it, like, it, it wasn't always the case. So I guess uh, Marie-Joseph Angelique was under the impression that she would be freed, or at least not exactly where she is. Uh, but then like his widow um, was like not willing to give her up. The widow fought back, and then Marie-Joseph supposedly threatened the widow with some sort of roasting or fire. Like, that was the threat. She had a lover named Claude Thibault, who was a French man, who was um, accused of murder, and so then he was banished to come to Canada, to New France, instead of... That's what they did. They sent all their criminals to their colonies. Um, So then he also became a domestic enslaved person for this family. So she had, like, a lover in the house. So then Angelique and the widows keep arguing, and then she, the widow decides that she's going to sell Angelique. So then Angelique then planned to escape with her lover, and um, so in the middle of the night, she lights her bed on fire, and then her and her lover, like, try and escape on foot, and they're crossing, like, the Fleuve Saint-Laurent. Like, it's been frozen over, so it's like an ice bridge. But then, obviously, they caught her, and they brought her back, right back to her situation. That's the first plan of escape, but it's also, like, the first strike of arson. Fire. Love her. Yeah. Go off. <laughs> Go off, sis. <laughs> so then the widow actually agreed to sell Angelique to a man in Quebec City for 600 pounds of gunpowder. And then as soon as the fleuve was going to thaw out, she was going to get like shipped downstream. 600 pounds of gunpowder? Yeah. Gunpowder. Yeah. As opposed to what? What else would you trade for in 1730? It's just, it's insane. It's, sorry. It's just, it, 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 bo- it boggles my mind that that's the thing. It just bought. sounds so ridiculous, Chaz, at this point. That, because we're like, this is a human life, and you're, 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 you're trading it for gunpowder. Like, the whole thing doesn't make any sense, at least from where we're sitting. So it, just, it seems ridiculous. But regardless, this is what happened to her. It's insane. Yeah. But let's continue. Her story is crazy. <laughs> so two months later, an evening where Therese, who's the widow, was out, Marie-Joseph sat outside her house with her friend Marie-Manon. And Marie-Manon was an enslaved uh, indigenous girl who worked next door. So the two of them were friends. So they're sitting outside their house and then suddenly a fire breaks out and basically all of Montreal burns down. And this is like the third time Montreal has burned down because Montreal is made of wood. And it is wood. <laughs> Again. <laughs> so basically all of Montreal burns down and Montreal is 45 buildings. And then a rumor starts going around that Marie-Joseph was boasting that Therese would be out of the house that night. And then just like that, Marie-Therese was in prison for arson, a crime punishable by death. Um, at the time, another thing to note is lawyers were also banned under King Louis XIV's rule. So he just didn't like lawyers. <laughs> and so they were also banned. There's, it's just hearsay like there's no real evidence other than a rumor and i wonder why a person it's a rumor that she was just happy that her that Therese was out of the house so who hmm, i wonder why an enslaved person would be thrilled that the person who's enslaving her wouldn't be home like why would that make somebody happy no it must be arson without a lawyer so basically what i'm gathering is the evidence against her was that she was black and uh, had well, set her bed on fire the yeah. evidence was that she was black, she threatened a fire, and she lit something on fire in the past. Right. And basically, without a lawyer, she's basically screwed. So 23 witnesses were, went on stand and basically just repeated the same rumor verbatim. And saying some even saying they even saw the fire start at her house. Like, even going further and saying more. And then uh, the source of the rumor was her friend Marie Manon, the indigenous woman who was enslaved next door. And she was the one who actually started the rumor. Oh, bitch. Betrayal. It be your own people. (laughs) Marie-Joseph Angelique was not silent during the trial. She consistently maintained that she had not started the fire right up until, you know, she was tortured and killed. And she yelled at Marie-Manon when she felt betrayed by her testimony. And she pleaded 
to the widow's niece not to incriminate her, fearing that she was being forced against her will. <laughs> the nail in the coffin. The nail in the coffin, essentially, <laughs> was the niece of the owners of the house, who she's five years old, and she said she saw her light the fire. She saw her carry coal. It's also, like, a sad story. Like, the person who was the executioner had a tragic life. Similarly, her lover, like, mysteriously disappeared. Um, so they think that, was he involved? Was he not involved? And basically, knowing that, knowing that she, you know, let's say she, she was accused, and let's say they decided it was her, like, that wasn't enough. They needed to torture her to know whether or not she acted alone. And obviously, um, any confession or information gathered by torture is, like, right, is in modern day deemed invalid, right? Because you'll say anything you can to stop getting tortured. Um, yep. She insisted that she acted alone and it was just like a coincidence that he vanished. Yeah, Mathieu Lavallée, who was the executioner and the torturer was an also, also an enslaved person. He's a man from the Caribbean who was convicted of murder and then he was banished to New France and it was basically, do you want to die for your crime or do you want to kill other people for your crime? And this is your role. Awful, awful choices. Oh my God, Jesus. And I'll just say, when it came to me like learning about this story, what I found really interesting was there was a line that I had read that Marie-Joseph was considered now to be a symbol of Black resistance um, or freedom in Canada. And I just want to go back to us at the beginning, basically stating that we really hadn't heard of her, which to, to me, those things don't go hand in hand. So just, just to something to think about is that this person is considered to be a symbol, but we didn't know anything about the story. So however you want to interpret that, I'll leave that up to you. But I just found that to be a very interesting part of this. So she was hung outside of uh, Notre Dame Basilica, which we go to all the time. We, that's where public executions happened. And her body was hanging for hours after she died. And in the video I saw, I thought it was, it was actually very poetic because the line was, right, that she, she's seen as an, um, an icon. She's a symbol of rebellion. And uh, she's still lighting fires. I that's a really good way to think about it. Chill. Oh. Wow. Right. So now there's no, we have no way of knowing if she actually lit the fire, if it was her. Um, you know, one of the alternative theories is that her friend, Marie Manon, lit the fire. And it was purely an accident. And like, basically, she's also an enslaved Indigenous person who is also the victim of this system that she knows if she doesn't point the finger, like, it's just going to turn around and she will be on her. That's, and that's what my theory was about this when I read about it was, you know, it would be her, especially because she had to speak up and say something at this trial you know it would make a lot of sense because she's in the exact same position right if it's not her it's going to be somebody else so i kind of i think that would be the most realistic yeah. theory yeah and it, it was sort of easier to to blame like marie joseph because she already was caught running away like she was in the works of be running away again like it's easy to to scapegoat her for for she's gonna say the scapegoating she's the perfect scapegoat for the situation God, oh, Jesus. I mean, I'm so glad I got to learn about this, but at the same time, like, I'm so sad that, you know, our education, you know, we, we get, we have mandatory history lessons, all of our elementary school, all of our high school, whether you studied in English or French, you know, you guys, I think, studied in, in English and I studied in French, and none of us collectively have ever heard anything like that. I didn't even know that, that there was slavery in Canada, and I sound so dumb saying that. I feel dumb saying that. And like I knew it was, and I knew it was a thing in the U.S., but you know, not Canada. Like the slavery narrative that we're told is that you know we aided the Americans in the Underground Railway. Like we were the ones that aided them in getting people outside of the U.S. And in reality, yeah. like I said, we had four thousand slaves in that you know two hundred year period. And it's so easy to blame Europeans, and we'll get into that. Actually, I'll get into that now. So this was all under like New France, like the French occupation of Canada. So then when the British conquered, it was literally the same shit. So then yep, it continued, exactly. After the British were defeated in the American Revolution in uh, 1783, the number of enslaved Africans in British North America increased and around 3,000 enslaved men, women, and children of African descent were brought into British North America. There were about 300 enslaved people in Lower Canada, which is Quebec. Again, a little parallel fact. So during the American Revolution War, a bunch of 
black loyalists, all these black enslaved people, if they fought for the British against Americans in, in the American Revolution War, post-war, you will remain free. And we might even give you a plot of land. Black people fought with the British forces and then they lost the war. And so they had to, they retreated where England still had, still had occupation. And that was Quebec. And then they went to Nova Scotia as well. So there were like communities of black people there. I personally, um, this is just a little side note, a little tangent, but I personally don't know a lot about my history on my, on my dad's side. Um, he's black and um, we're from Nova Scotia. So in my head, no I, way. Yeah. I assume that we come from like the black loyalists, like descendants from, because we genuinely don't know our history. All we know is that we've been in Nova Scotia for generations. So that to me, I feel a lot of, I, I don't know, pride when it comes to this, because I almost feel like it's a part of me. Um, I genuinely, I don't know. I should do the 23 and me to really see. I'm really fascinated by their story. Some even took a boat to Sierra Leone, and that was like the only case of returning to the homeland. In early Canada, um, people who enslaved other people held a small number of enslaved people, while others had more than 20. Uh, Father Louis Payette, the priest of uh, Saint Antoine sur Richelieu, um, enslaved five people, one Indigenous and four Blacks. James McGill, member of the Assembly of Lower Canada and founder of McGill University, counted six enslaved Black people as part of his property. <sighs> a precedent-setting case, some before the courts in Lower Canada in February in 1798, an enslaved woman named Charlotte was arrested in Montreal after leaving her mistress and refusing to return. She was brought before Chief Justice James Monk, who the Metro is named after and he released her based on a technicality. So British law stated that an enslaved person could only be detained in houses of correction, not common jails. And since there were no houses of correction that existed in Montreal, Monk decided that Charlotte could not be detained. So on this technicality, um, he kept allowing enslaved people to no longer be enslaved on this technicality, like on purpose. So he's seen a little, that's why the Metro is named after him. He also, like, that was his small part in human rights at the time. An Another ally. enslaved woman named Jude was freed by Monk on the same grounds, and Monk asserted his ruling that he would apply the interpretation of the law to all future cases. Like, this is how I interpret the law, and this is how I will do it. So I thought that was really cool. That is really cool. That's real ally work. Although the practice of enslavement had decreased considerably by the 1820s. It remained legal in British North America, so slavery was officially abolished in 1834. During the last two-century period, settlers in what would eventually become Canada were involved in the transatlantic slave trade. Canada has further linked to the institution of enslavement through its history of international trade uh, and you know, trading with products such as salted cocoa and timber were exchanged for slave-produced goods such as rum, molasses, tobacco, and sugar from slaveholding colonies in the Caribbean. So while they didn't, after 1834, officially have enslaved people, they still contributed to the industry by purchasing from people who are enslaved in other countries. Right. That's like a really expedited version of like a history of slavery. How much haven't we learned about? And I, I find that it's like 99% I never knew. So when it comes to talking about this, like we've already said, where do I start and how do I approach this? And I think you're doing a great job. And it's actually, it's edu I'm being educated on a lot of stuff, even just having this conversation. So you're doing a great job, in my opinion. I'm speaking only from a white person's perspective who's really had like a, I don't want to say revelation. Revelation, I feel like is really dramatic and it, it makes it seem like it's about me but it really kind of put me in my place of like, how, how have I benefited from this for so, so long? And it, maybe it's not, you know, uh, it's not to the extent of, you know, being overtly racist and getting away with it. Like I've never personally ever been racist. I wasn't raised like that, thankfully. Um, but if I, maybe I, I can give, if, if anyone is listening one and maybe still doesn't quite understand, you know, uh, you know, inherent systemic racism and perhaps white privilege, just in a nutshell, I think you both know this story, but I was in a situation where I got arrested at a music festival because one of the guys I was staying with in a room had a lot of drugs on him. And it was a significant amount. It was, you know, we did jail time for a few days. There, there was a court proceeding. There was a whole situation. And all three of us, even though I was, I, I was actually innocent, it was still my room and I was still under, obviously under suspicion. And I was one of the key suspects. I don't want to say suspects, it's true. 
Um, and so was my ex. And so was the guy who actually did it. And none of us actually did jail time. And one of the, ba- the main things was, you know, we were bright kids and we fell in with, with like the wrong person. And even the, the both guys who were white, uh, my ex who did nothing actually, and the guy who was actually the drug dealer, you know, they didn't, they didn't question them. They weren't rough with them. You know, when we got arrested, there was a significant amount of drugs that were in the room. Essentially, the the nitty gritty doesn't really matter. All that matters is that we weren't brutalized when we were arrested. You know, we weren't um, held longer than we were when we needed to be. Um, the court was very, I want to say, lenient on us for the, the the situation at hand. And I can't now look back on that and say that my race and who I, who I, how I present didn't have anything to do with that because people get caught, get caught or get stopped for significantly less with way less evidence, with way less circumstantial evidence. And they face way worse realities. And that to me was kind of my big thing of like, you know, I always feel like, Oh no, I like, I've never, I've never taken advantage of white privilege. I'm very equal. I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm very fair. You know, I can't be racist. I have cousins who, who are black, but it's, it's, it, that's all good and dandy, but it's then realizing you have been by not, by not calling out, or, but basically by not being anti-racist, you're being compl- complicit and you're benefiting from it. And just because it never made you feel uncomfortable and it never disrupted your flow of life doesn't mean that you're not benefiting from it. Exactly. So we talk about systemic racism or s- systemic oppression, and that really is the oppression occurring through you know, society, or, you know, it's based on institutionalized laws and our procedures. So, I mean, it's not on you. You, you wouldn't at the time of that incident have been thinking, oh, I'm going to benefit from, you know, from all of this, like, oh, here I am being racist. No, like it's, it's built in our societies and you're right. You do get to benefit from it. Um, but I also want to, wanted to go back just a little bit to the beginning of this where you're like, as a white woman, like, I don't know what to say, this sort of thing, especially when we're talking about this, it's really great, at least in my, my point of view, it's great to get your point of view because you, you grew up in Quebec. So you kind of, you firsthand get to know how deep this runs. You grew up there. I grew up in Ontario. So I kind of have a different, we grew up in completely different places with different mentalities almost, it seems. Um, so I think your point of view for all this is it's, it's extremely extremely valid um, because you know your direct descendants from the people who might have been there at the time right so you've and not saying like you know you you guys were part of this or anything like that but it, it it's really interesting and important to note that you know where you are now is a direct correlation from what we were just talking about to see that other side because yeah, yeah you might have benefited from it and that's completely right but the fact that someone who came from that is willing to make the change, that's what's important. Because you guys were the ones that were there in the first place. And now if you're willing to make that change, you guys have that power um, that was created with that system. Um, so yeah, I think it's super important that you do have a voice in this because if, you know, if it, in theory, you know, if it was you guys that started this type of thing, it can also be you guys that help end it. And that's what I think is super important. But that's exactly what it has to be. It's not your it's not your position to now comment on how black people want to feel and how they live through this movement and how they choose to express themselves. Your 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 role and your job is to take the other white people and be like, listen guys, um, we're gonna give them a platform, we're gonna give them a voice, or give them not a voice, we're gonna give them their voice that they that they've always deserved and are, are entitled to and, and amplify it. And amplify it, and that was you no. Know, that that that's the whole. It's it's not it's not. Oh, now white people can't say anything. That's not that's not it at all. It's white people. You haven't been saying enough. You you've just, that's the whole point. You, you haven't been saying anything. So now you have to say things, and not just when someone is blatantly racist. Obviously, call that shit out. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, do that. But it's 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 the small things. You know, not letting people get away with saying you know you know pseudo racist things or you know. If you're ignoring it, then you're choosing to, and I do not want you, I don't want to see you in my feed, you have nothing to contribute to, to the conversation, goodbye. We speak about it, and we acknowledge that, okay, I haven't known this my whole life, but it's not too late. We're not, you know, 100 years old, and now it's like, oh gosh, the end of my life, I should have known this. You know, we're young enough to be able to, you know, try and shape, you know, it's true. It is. It's true. We don't stop learning the minute we leave school. 
<laughs> so if anything, I personally feel like I've learned more in the time that I've left school than I did when I was in it. And to your point, like we're not a hundred years old. We are in our twenties and we, we have so much more to learn and we have so much time to do it. And I feel like we should really be taking advantage of it right now. And have humility. You know what? Uh, like D D Denise openly saying that she wasn't, you know, completely certain about terms and she wasn't certain. You know, that's okay. Deprogramming and, and retraining yourself and, and being able to, you know, recognize things that you thought were just okay. Band-Aids. Sorry, I, I, that blew my mind because um, this is a tangent really quickly, but Band-Aids. And it never occurred to me that Band-Aids were part of, uh, again, I'm not saying Band-Aids are like at the root of racism. You know, that's a hefty claim. Um, but the fact that there was, like, I'd never seen a brown Band-Aid. And I'm like, I, I genuinely haven't. Like, that's... That's insane. Like, I guess the makeup industry, very right, in, in recent years, it was like a very uh, controversial thing that brands, you know, didn't have a wide shade range. Back then, I was like, wow, I never noticed that because they always have, you know, an ivory peach shade. I mean, like, you know, ivory peaches, you know, or whatever the shades are. We always have those. It, I, I was seeing this much. I'm like, well, this is my life and this is what affects me. So why would I, why would I care? But now it's like, it's insane that you know, the products just don't cater to all races. It's not like you don't exist. You know, they're, they're there. They've been there. Oh my God, I, I can go, I could go on, but I'm not going to. I'm Especially sorry. Especially in the makeup industry, I think it's ridiculous because I read a statistic that people of color um, are, are uh, a group of people that spend like twice as much time and three times as much money in like the, the cosmetic and, you know, beauty industry. So it's not like like the like the arguments that people used to use. Well, it's like oh well, it's a smaller you know it's a smaller demographic. Oh, it's where you know it's like those are false because while I don't know if it's a smaller demographic, which I'm doubting too. But even if it was a smarter smaller demographic, they they buy twice and three times as many because like the the black beauty standard is something of its own. Like it's 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 its own. It's ingrained also in culture. And you just said something that 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 I guess is a, a, another parallel. So people will say, okay, the, you know, the black community makes up a small percentage of people, right? So that's why we we won't cater to them. But they're also responsible for all the crime. So somehow this tiny population that you can't even <laughs> to yep. is now is somehow responsible for the majority of the crime. Like it's one or the other, or it's not. What you guys are really touching on is the idea of the overrepresentation and underrepresentation, right? So we're being underrepresented in terms of in a bunch of different industries, like makeup, uh, like even band aids. Um, for me, the first time I ever experienced it was when I was a little kid and I was drawing in kindergarten and I had to get a skin colored crayon and it was peach. Like, you know, so that sort of thing. And then the overrepresentation, like you were saying, like in terms of like crime, you know, overrepresentation of, you know, black men in prison or, you know, that sort of thing. So it's a, it's a huge problem. And again, that's just ingrained in our society. And I feel like Canada gets a little bit of a pass, right? Because, you know, it's, we feel like it's so much worse in the States, but we're just completely omitting also all our indigenous crimes. Absolutely. The, the exact same things apply to them. Overrepresentation in prison, underrepresentation, you know, television, media, cosmetics. On the Marielas podcast, we love playing the blame game. And this was based off another podcast I watched called The Alarmist, where she literally throws people and concepts into prison. So if we did have a prison, who is responsible for systemic racism? And I have a pen, I have a paper, and I'm ready to throw as many names off the board and then maybe do a process of elimination. So I was going to right away start like with the history of, of slavery, I think is a really good start to racism. Who's responsible for slavery? Yeah, Napoleon ass looking dudes who have some sort of com God complex. I was gonna say, yeah, throw King Louis the, the 14th in there. It has to be a short man with a God complex because it's a short man with no brain cells or limited brain cells who sees a tall man in a suit with lots of brain cells. And he's like, haha, I was born into power. You shouldn't have any. Boom. That's absolutely true. But very rarely are the angry white men very tall. <laughs> <laughs> Why are they so angry? Maybe they're angry just because they're short. Maybe that's all they need. I was Those for men will solve racism. <laughs> I was talking to a friend earlier this week and we were kind of having a similar conversation where we were like, what, like, what are these, like, thinking about history, like, what are all these white men so angry about? Because <laughs> really, everything that they've built 
goes in their favor, even against white women, like just women in general. Like, what are they so mad about? <laughs> and like we couldn't figure it out so like we were trying to pinpoint you know what could it be what could it be and it's kind of the same as this blame game is like who is to blame for this we've got to figure out first of all why are you mad second of all who are you mad at and also who are you to be mad at this you know everything works out for you but i mean it's got to be those monarchs that's what i'm thinking they, they've had all the power this whole time i don't know what happened i think it's easy to blame like french and english royalty but you know the history of slavery like dates back i think older than these monarchs i i think it was like the portuguese like who who historically were the first people who enslaved people well i mean what was it the um like the pyramids were built by slaves and that's you know so long ago so this is like the longest ago (laughs) the longest ago like so long ago people argue that potentially aliens did it like no like it was it was people who were enslaved but you know that's how how long that this goes back and probably way before that we we, we can dig up a bone and be like this dinosaur was 18 feet tall but we can't figure out like why slavery was like even a concept that that seems very convenient the trends indicate that those who have power like to enslave people who don't have power. Who don't have power. Correct. But power, what is power? Power is given arbitrarily. Like power is decided arbitrarily. Well, it's, it's, I think it's either, it's, you're either, I hate this expression, but it's either, you're either born with it or like people take it. So, yeah. so like you're either born into power or you're not born into power and you take it from someone who was born into power. So I guess it does come down to you're born, like you, it has to be ingrained within you. I have power on the board, on the paper. But if I think about to when Europeans first came to North America and like it was like white man versus the indigenous people, like at that point, nobody has power because it hasn't been ascribed to anybody. But in that case, Europeans were the ones who had the power in the situation. Why? Was it because they had bigger armies? Was it because they had guns? Guns. Was it guns? So are we blaming? Okay. Guns. Guns on the board. So if we're talking about it this way, then I think we would have to maybe separate it um, from, you know, racism or slavery, that sort of thing. And just really think back, is it, is it a biological thing? Like, I know there's the whole, like, you know, racism is, it's learned, we're not born racist or anything like that, but are, are humans born with, you know, the desire to, to be dominant? Does it have something to do with that? So over the years, has it been that, you know, tribes are going to war with each other because they want to be the more dominant ones. They want to have control. Um, so I think, you know, power is one, control, dominance, you just want to make sure that you and the people that you know and the people that are around you are the ones succeeding. And I think if we think about it that way, that could kind of help us pinpoint it down a little bit more. Um, and I think that's kind of where it comes from. It's, it's kind of within us to want to have the most, to be the best. And I think if we separate it from, from racism and everything and figure out what it boils down to, that's probably where we'll get the most, you know, information. I feel like it's just maybe an awful, awful side effect of years of this kind of behavior. And playing into that, in addition to like wanting to dominate and wanting to like own, it's also about possession to have as many items as possible. I think, you know, race is like the easiest way to separate individuals because it's visual, right? As opposed to like um, a religion, ideology, any other, you know, factor. I think another thing we could say is fear also. Because it's more, I want to dominate, I want to own, and it puts you on the offensive, but it it could also stand into a position where like, what if they come take what I have? So it's it's also like, I'm I'm scared of them, fear of other, in addition to, I don't know how much of it is like wanting to be on the offensive and wanting to absorb it all. all, You want to protect yourself. You want to protect your people, right? In our nature just like animals to have to to establish a hierarchy because that's how a society works and so having having a dominant figure or a leader in a in 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 a group of individuals is really natural and normal but the understanding is that the person who is in charge is going to take care of the other people that's why they're in charge so you know you have let's say the white 
the white people, the white men have people in charge. And the person who's in charge at the top of the white men was, isn't necessarily protecting all the white men. He just happens to have all the power. So everyone's already agitated. It's a monarchy. And so when they travel and explore new places and it was basically expressed as that they saw societies living like savages where, and they were threatened by basically the cohesiveness of the tribes and cohesiveness of the, their society, of the indigenous societies that, that basically appointed a leader based on knowledge and wisdom and the fact that, like I said, they're going to protect their, their own. So that also pertains back into the fear factor. They don't feel good about their own hierarchy, so it's fragile. And it's easily breakable. So the way, I guess, that the leaders reinforce their power and, and demonstrate to their own uh, hierarchy and their own structure that they are a good leader is by dominating whole other groups. And so it's just, it's a show of force. It's not, it's, and it has nothing to do with actually being strong and actually being a leader and actually being worthy of being in charge. It's just, it, it was flawed from the start. Racism is based on white fragility. <laughs> Sorry, I think it's so a really related. good point. We're trying to figure out here, this list is really the origin of systemic racism, right? Mm-hmm. And that we're all responsible for systemic uh, racism because it benefits people like Olivia and I. <laughs> so while, yes, we are to blame, we're trying to figure out who's to blame initially. Who can we blame the beginning <laughs> <laughs> what does it come down to of the list? Right, fragile, masculinity. fragile masculinity will sort of like bond short white men and white masculinity. So we could say, we you know, oh. that, that puts those together. And then falling under that umbrella is King Louis XIV, because if anything, he is a victim of small yes. white fragility. <laughs> um, Poor guy. Oh. Poor man. Uh, so we're putting... Uh, short white fragility, I'll put there. So now on the list. Oh, and Christopher Columbus, fuck that guy. Yeah, he sucks. But he was already crucified in my indigenous person episode. So <laughs> a recall, you know, like episodes and every episode we say fuck Christopher Columbus. That, that oh, I good. like that. I like that. Um, I I initially thought we were going to say John A. McDonald. We were going to like keep, you know, because he, we put him to blame for like systemic racism against indigenous people. So maybe he's also to blame here. Okay. Maybe I'll put him down. So I have a short white fragility, power guns. I would say (laughs) kind of not putting it on a specific person, but you know, the government, if we're talking about systemic racism, you have to think about the government. They yeah. are the ones that really have control. But that being said, it kind of does fall on all of our shoulders because we're the ones, if we're supposed to be living in a democratic society, right? We're the ones that are supposed to be having the voice. So if we aren't showing up to these local elections, if we're not the ones who are, you know, going out and voting for these legislators who are going to be the ones who actually make the laws, then we might be a little bit to blame because we're not informed enough. And of course that does come down, you know, we're not being informed, but like you had said earlier in this podcast, Liv, is, you know, we're in an age in which we have access to information on our own. Exactly. And in our society, like the president or the prime minister is just like an amalgamation of the people. Like, exactly. He is a symbolic figurehead to represent you're blowing my mind, Jai. You're blowing my mind. <laughs> okay, so on the list, I have uh, short white fragility, power guns, dominance, John A. McDonald's, the government, and everybody. Should we just stop? And talk everybody. <laughs> I love that. I think that that's perfect, honestly. Yeah. Denise, did you go to any of the protests? I didn't go to any of the protests. Because, like, I know Jai went, and, but, like, I, I went to two because they happened to be two in Montreal. I'd never been to a protest in my life, and, like, I don't know if that's a bad thing to say that I've never felt strong enough about anything to want to go protest about it. And I chose that during a global pandemic, that would be like the wisest choice for me to go out and do that. It was respectful. It was powerful. It was, it was just, it was a beautiful moment. People were so unified. It it just felt so electric. It was insane. You know, for some people going to a protest is the way that they want to show their support. And for another, you know, that might not be the case. Um, And I mean, I just, I, I think it's super important to, to stress that it is an amazing experience and it is something that I personally, I loved being a part of, 
but if you're not going to be a part of them it doesn't mean that you're any less a part of the movement if you're doing something else to be involved you know like i was saying before this is all so so overwhelming because it feels like it really has just been thrown at us and you know for for black people or any person of color who might have been experiencing this for their whole lives you know maybe for them it wasn't this big of a shock but for people who are living under this veil of you know colorblindness is how i want to put it it's that false um concept of ignoring race and being like oh well i don't see color but just because you don't see it doesn't mean that it's not there i want to just make sure that people know you know it's it's okay to take your time with this and you know just because you didn't go to the first one doesn't mean that you might not be there like or that you won't be there for you know the 10th one so in our lifetimes we've seen you know um, the LGBTQ, we've seen what protests can do and what being loud and raising your voice and using your privilege, that sort of thing. We've seen what it can do. And personally, I, I feel as though, you know, as a black woman, like it's, it feels like, okay, you know what? Here we go. Buckle in. It's, it's our turn. It's, it's, it's our time. And I'm just, it's so wonderful to see everybody come forward and be like, you know what? You're right. Like it is your turn. It's your time. And we're here to, to fix this. And then, you know, after this is fixed, we're on to the next thing. Everyone coming together is really showing that we have the ability to change this type of society and we're going to. <laughs> I would love to end this podcast on one actionable item. I am really advocating for education. So I think that the best way to attack this is to be really well informed so that we know the proper steps to move forward. So for me personally, I've just been trying to learn something new every day and actually try to retain it. So not just reading an Instagram post or just reposting it and being like, okay, I've done what I needed to do today, but actually taking the time to learn something and going one step further for me personally is, you know, if I see something on Instagram, I will do a Google search off of Instagram to see what else I can learn. I like that. And I also like, um, I like the learning one thing every day. I think that's just even a good motto to have in life, like just to never in life. Yeah. Um, I, I like the actionable items. It's been like a little bit of a challenge, but it's been like a fun challenge uh, finding black owned businesses to like particularly support in this time. That's been so much fun in yes. restaurants, in, in clothing and cosmetics. Like that's just been a fun thing to do. Lunar sleepwear. She makes silk pajamas, silk two set pajamas and embroiders your initials. And then Atelier Syrah for lip glosses, strawberries by Nyota for custom strawberries brownages for uh, brown band-aids <laughs> and my action item for for me as every day is to is to be anti-racist and it, it, it sounds a little intense but it's to not just be not it's to be anti-racist thank you so much ladies for being here we've been talking for like a really long time <laughs> a really long time thank you so much for you know having us having me i i have loved this whole experience we're trying our best and i think that's all we can ask of ourselves and those around us. Those around us. I fully, fully agree. <laughs>